Well, we have been in the series, and we've called it The Reason Why, on Genesis 1 through 3. And it's been wonderful. How, how good has everything been uh, so far? We've been in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We've, we've soaked in on Eden, how it's a place where God dwells, a place where God reigns, where work is satisfying and relationships are rich. It's been a wonderful time. We got to spend last week looking at, at marriage as this uh, reflection of God's love. God's love, which is self-giving and permanent and exclusive and joyous. It's a place where we get to rest with God. It's a sanctuary. It has been a wonderful time to focus on Eden. And that is why we've had this image of a tree to reflect on as we've uh, looked at Genesis 1 through 3, because in Genesis 1 through 3, we have the fullness, the leafy life and beauty of the garden. And it's wonderful and healthy. But when we come to Genesis 3, we come into a dying, sick, and corrupt world. Today we move from the lush green side of that tree and start to see the dead, dry, brown decay of the other side of that tree. The reason why today is dealing with the question, what is wrong with the world? You might say, my goodness, you cannot answer what is wrong with the world with one sermon Uh, with one message, with one little passage of Scripture. But this is the fountain of what is wrong with the world. List any one of the problems that you see in the world, whether it be poverty or war or terrorism or fatherlessness, whether it be uh, any number of sins, drug abuse, alcoholism, anything. It comes out of this passage. It comes from here. This is its wellspring. The world wants to look at all of these things as separate issues, but the scriptures bind them all into one root. When uh, a a newspaper about 100 years ago asked the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a great uh, Christian apologist, wrote in with one line. It said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am the problem with the world. That's a stunning thing. That, that points the finger back at us, not at the problems. It says whatever the problem is in the world... I belong to it. I contribute to it. And the reason that that is true is because our fallenness is right here in this passage. Today we are going to examine and learn the reason why the world is broken. The reason why you feel shame. The reason why you hide. The reason why you don't want to be fully known. The reason you keep secrets. The reason every single one of us struggles with sin. That we have all said, I can't believe I did that. 
one time or another. Today we are going to unmask the horror of sin. Those words are deliberate. I want sin to be a horror for you. Because until we see the horror of sin, we will not see and be motivated to run to the remedy for sin. We cannot play games with sin. We cannot call it little picadillos. We must recognize that sin is horrible. And as we live in it, we are in a horror story. And if we do not repent from it, we have an eternity of horrors awaiting us. Because sin is a horror. This passage is both an explanation of why we sin, where sin comes from, what sin is, and it is also a warning. It is to counsel us on what we must do to fight sin. But I will tell you, its remedy is really not revealed in this passage except in shadow. We must face this passage to see the reality and seriousness of sin. Today is the bad diagnosis. Nobody wants to go and get the bad diagnosis. We want to hear the words negative. We want to hear the words everything's going to be okay uh, or, or this, this, this malignancy isn't really in you. But if you have the malignancy and the doctor doesn't tell you you have the malignancy, then you have just gone into death. Today, the diagnosis is hard, but the diagnosis is accurate. And an accurate diagnosis means that we can find exactly the remedy we need. And that is what this passage gives us today. The horror of sin. The fall reveals the horror of sin. This passage is going to show us three things that make sin particularly horrible. We're going to see that sin is slithery. We're going to see that sin is treasonous. And then we're going to see that sin is irreversible. Sin is slithery, treasonous, and irreversible. Let us look at the slitheriness of sin. We come out of uh, chapter 2 where we were told that they were both naked and were not ashamed. A picture of, of how, how beautifully, naively free of sin they were. And we come to these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? I want us to see in the serpent's temptation that sin is slithery. I like the word slithery. Because in the word itself is its meaning. I can't take hold of it. The reason that snakes make so many of us recoil is it doesn't work in predictable ways. It moves in weird ways. It can go backwards and forwards, left or right, as easily. You have a, a four-legged animal in front of you. You know that you're safe if you're on this side or that side. But a snake coils and wraps and can go in any direction. It is dangerous from any side. It is slithery. 
It is hard to take hold of. It is fast. It darts. It escapes. It can get anywhere. It exists to find the weakness. No matter how, how, how de- thick your defenses are, the snake slithers through. When we came home as a, a family, when I was a young kid, we came home from a, a week vacation, uh, and uh, we started unpacking our bags and putting everything away. And we looked across the hall into the, into the office bedroom, and there was this strange little thing draped across the windowsill. We looked at it. What is that? We looked at it closer. We got to the awareness that it was a six-foot-long black snake that was just sunning itself on the windowsill, just laying there in our house, six-foot-long snake. And that's when I discovered uh, my mother's absolute uh, terror of snakes as uh, she jumped and ran and screamed and, and uh, went quite hysteric. And it was a, a, an interesting process of how we got the snake out of the house. But the real question that I want us to think about is, how? How did the snake get in the house? The door was, doors weren't open. The windows weren't open. Everything was shut. It took us a long time to figure out that the snake had come down from a tree into our chimney, and slithered into the house. We didn't have any defense for the snake coming down the chimney. The snakes are slithery, and it got right in. And this is a portrait of sin. It is not an accident that the the tempter took the form of a snake because sin comes at us as a slithery device. It comes at us where our defenses are weak. It wants to say, a little bit won't hurt. It wants to come in at a place of confusion. It wants to come in at a place that seems permissible, hidden. It comes in like it comes in in these words in 2 Samuel. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. You know the rest of the story. From the scene of the woman bathing to the wanting to know who the woman is, we go through adultery, we go through murder, we go through lies, we go through the entire buffet of sin. And it destroys the potency of David's kingship. And it came in as a slithering, deceitful view of a woman. We must always be aware of the slitheriness of sin. See how the snake works in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, did God actually say, slither, is God really, this is the question that, that the snake is bringing up when he says, did God actually say, he's saying, 
is God being good and fair to you in doing this prohibition? I mean, the question, did God actually say, is not much different than the break room conversation when you say, can you believe the newest thing that the boss just came up with? They're not saying that because isn't our boss wonderful? (laughs) That the boss has found one more way to make us more efficient or to get a little bit more out of us. No, can you believe what that boss in the corner office came up with now? That's the question. Did God actually say slither? What he is doing is creating suspicion about God's character. Is it a good God that would say, I can't have something in the garden? Something that that's, seems so nice? The commentary uh, by Victor Hamilton describes this scene well. He says, apart from this claim being unadulterated distortion, it is an attempt to create in the woman's mind the impression that God is spiteful, mean, obsessively jealous and self-protective. It cleverly provides Eve with an opportunity to defend God and to clarify his position. For by this one statement of the stake, God has moved from beneficent provider to cruel oppressor. You see, the snake has just started getting the woman to argue on the possibility that God has done something unfair, withholding. And so just in answering the question, the woman has has entertained a suspicion of God's goodness, of God's character. But it moves on. Verse 4, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. I mean, come on. Is God really going to do anything if you eat this fruit? Is God really that concerned about that fruit? Is God going to be such a party pooper that he's going to take away your opportunity to enjoy yourself in this one little way? Slither. Slither. The serpent is denying God's judgment. See, don't be afraid of God's judgment. Slither. Suspect God's character. Slither. Don't believe that God will judge according to his word. And then, verse 5, the serpent says, God knows When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Do you see how much good stuff is on the other side of breaking this one little rule that's unfair and withholding? You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be smarter and enlightened. You'll have grown up. Slither. Slither. Is God's word in your best interest? You see, sin is slithery. 
It wants to convince you that God is not good to you. It wants to convince you that God's judgment is imaginary. It wants to convince you that God's word is not really for your good. That it's keeping you away from what you should have. This is the slitheriness of sin, and I would say you are not being honest with yourselves. If this slitheriness has not gotten you in trouble somewhere in your own life, this is just an example. But sin knows how to work us, how to tempt us. And so what do we need to know when we know the slitheriness of sin? It's very simple. Don't play with the devil. Don't play with the serpent. Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary, said it so succinctly, I I, I, I almost missed it. But he says this, The woman's first mistake was her willingness to talk with the serpent and respond to the creature's cynicism. Just having the conversation is where she lost it. Just playing with the slitheriness of sin is where you lose. So don't play with sin. Don't talk back. Don't enter a conversation as if this is something worth discussing. Remember, as Jesus tells us, the snake is the father of lies. As we know from the rest of Scripture, the serpent is Satan. John 8, we are told he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. To even have a conversation with him is to give him more credit than he is due He is lying to you. He is twisting the truth with you. To play the game with him is to already be losing. The first foothold that you see in the woman is distance. Distance from God. We have noticed in chapter 2 that God's presence is there. God has revealed himself in his covenant name, Lord God. The word Lord means his his presence, his accessibility, his intimacy, his approachability, his loving kindness to his people. That's who God is. When you say the word Lord, you're saying my loving, kind God who loves me. And when the serpent comes, he says, did God say? And the woman responds, God said. Simply forgetting That it's not God, it's the Lord God. It's the one who loved you and gave you the garden and has, has filled you with all the richness of this place. It's that God that said this. But when you just say, oh yeah, God, in some abstract sense, there's already a distance where God can be examined and questioned. That is why... When we recognize the slitheriness of sin, we should be repeatedly and and carefully and often and heartfeltly coming to the Lord in the prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
The Lord's prayer is given to us because it recognizes our weakness to the slitheriness of sin. So attack it with the words, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I need your strength. I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. Father, protect me. If we are fighting sin without the words, Father, deliver me from evil, you have overassumed yourself and you have put yourself in grave peril. Sin is slithery, but second, sin is treasonous. Sin is treasonous. The serpent tells Eve, You will be like God. And that was the clincher. Be like God. The temptation is to be like God. Note, the serpent does not tell the woman to eat. She makes that choice. She chooses to eat. The sin is her choice. She took the words, you will be like God, and she said, yes. So how does it begin? How does... How does this treasonous sin begin in the woman? It begins with coveting. We are told that the woman desires to be made wise. And that word desires is the exact same word that we get in the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Do not covet, do not desire. It was coveting that began the transgression in Eden. Meaning that sin is not external. Sin is not first and foremost what our hands or our mouths or our feet have gotten us to. Sin is in the heart. Sin has already done its work in the heart. Because that's where coveting happens. That's where coveting is powerful. Not even a word needs to be spoken for you to have committed the same sin as Eve. Because your heart can wordlessly rebel against God. To see the heinousness of this coveting, consider how she should have responded. I I love how D.A. Carson treats this what-if scenario. He says, we gain a little insight into the terrible slippage going on in the woman's mind if we conjure up what she should have said. Perhaps something like this. Are you out of your skull? Look around. This is Eden. This is paradise. God knows exactly what he is doing. He made everything. He even made me. My husband loves me, and I love him. And we are both intoxicated with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. My very being resonates with the desire to reflect something of his spectacular glory back to him. How could I possibly question his wisdom and love? He knows in a way I never can exactly what is best, and I trust him absolutely. And you want me to doubt him or question the purity of his motives and character? How idiotic is that? Besides, What possible good can come of a creature defying his creator and sovereign? 
Are you out of your skull? That is what the heart fixed on God should have been thinking and saying when the serpent started tempting. So you see, it starts with coveting. In a world of grace, in a world of bounty and beauty and fullness, in a world where God gave them everything good, the thought, I deserve more, has constricted her heart. I deserve more. How is that true of us? How do we look at all the stuff that we have and we still say, I should have more. I deserve more. I am worth more. I ought to have this. We don't even treat coveting as a sin. We treat coveting as self-improvement. And yet, we are shown the bare, bald, naked reality that coveting can lead us out of the garden. I mean, how true is this of us as Christians? How many of us live our lives basically saying, thanks, Jesus, for your blood, but what I really need is a new car or a better job or better health? Thanks for your sacrifice, Jesus, but I need happiness today. I need happiness in things. Please give me those things so that I can be happy. Do we see how we have twisted the world of grace with an insatiable, covetous appetite? But this is treason. This is not just coveting. This is treason. What is she doing? Look at verse 6. Look at it very carefully. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is actually treason. This isn't just a a small sin, a small transgression in the heart. She is discerning her good apart from God. She is asserting autonomy against God. You see, in this this passage, we see that the view of good that she has becomes the standard, not God. Who has been saying good every time before this passage? God. God says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Now we have the woman saying, something that God said I shouldn't is actually good. So she has put the standard of good, her standard of good, greater than God's. What else motivates her? Her delight. Her delight, which is to say that she has made her judgment of what is beautiful and wonderful as the ultimate, not God. She sees that if she goes for it, it will make her wise which is a way of saying that her will, her desire to become wise, becomes authoritative to her, not God. 
Do you see in choosing sin and choosing what God has said no to, we inevitably and necessarily have to say, God, you're over here because my will, my understanding of good, my desire, those are ultimate. Those are authoritative. Sin is taking God down and putting ourselves in place of him. And so what Genesis 3 shows us is sin is not just breaking a rule. It's an act of overthrow of the rule giver. When I was in my engineering job, there was a task that the manager of the project gave to me. He gave it to me in the middle of a meeting. And he said, Nathan, I need you to do this. It was a small task. It wasn't a big thing. And I said, No. In the meeting, out loud, I couldn't believe I said it. Other people heard it. Now, there's two ways this could go. I could say, I just said no to a small, stupid thing. But is that how the boss sees it? What's the real sin of saying no? Saying no to your boss. It's insubordination. It's rebellion. It's not the size of the thing that was said no to. It's the fact that I was told something from my superior and I said no to that person. I defied that authority. That is a rebellion. That is an act of treason when we are speaking back to God. And that is what is happening when we sin. Sin is an act of treason against God. When we take the fruit, we are taking something that has been prohibited by God. It doesn't matter what we think of the fruit. The fact that it was prohibited by God means that when we take it, we are putting ourselves in place of God. And so we are told in Romans 8, 7 what sin actually is. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The word hostile. Sin is an act of hostility. It is an act of overthrow. It is saying, you don't deserve to be my God. I say all of this to make sin reprehensible. Is it not disgusting to think that sin is calling down our creator and putting ourselves in his place. But that is what sin is. And so third, we see that sin is irreversible. The moment that she takes and eats and gives to her husband and he takes and eats, their eyes were opened. And we discover that sin is irreversible. Notice how sin plays dirty tricks. I mean, the, the, the devil said, if you, if you eat this, you won't die. Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. And there is a way to read this text and say, you know what? In a technical sense, Satan did not exactly lie. Because we see that the, women, the, the man and the woman, their eyes were opened, but not to enlightenment. They were opened 
to shame. They saw each other as naked and they were embarrassed and guilty. In a sense, they did become like God because now they do know evil. Just as God knows good and evil, they now know evil. But they don't know it by being like God. They know it by becoming evil. And then when the serpent says, you will not truly or certainly die, it is true. Physical death does not drop upon them the moment they eat the fruit. But they do become dead in another more serious sense. They become dead spiritually. They become dead in that immediately they are under God's curse. Immediately they are moved outside of the garden and separated from his presence. Immediately they are uh, denied access from the tree of life, which is the sentence of death brought upon them. So yeah, sin holds out a promise, but they are dirty tricks. It reminds me of the words in the the, uh, fifth chapter of Proverbs, which says, The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. You see, sin always presents itself as a beautiful but forbidden thing. And we think when we have it, we will have the kiss of our life. But in the reality, it is the kiss of death. It tricks us and it brings us into guilt and shame and separation. And so the tragedy of sin is that it is irreversible. Immediately, their eyes are opened. They knew they were naked and they hid This is still true. Sin is irreversible. It brings immediate and irreversible guilt when we commit sin. The word in verse 7, then their eyes were opened, then falls like a bag of bricks on our sin. Once you have sinned, there is no going back to not having sinned. Once you have lied, you cannot go back to not being a liar. The sin is is irreversible. It is there. You can't undo it. You can't unsay it. You can't erase it. And so we all live with the horror of the accuser whispering in our ear, I know what you did. And we have to agree the accuser knows our sins. They are still in our past. I know what you did. There is no going back to naked and unashamed. Once it is lost, it is lost forever. We all run to cover. The fig leaves don't work, and whatever we use to cover ourselves don't ultimately work either. Sin is irreversible in a cosmic sense, too. Sin is irreversible in the fact that their loss, Adam and Eve's loss, is is our loss. All of us, because of this passage, live outside of the Garden of Eden. Not a single one of us can see it with our own eyes. As our first parents, that's what they were, their guilt, their sinful condition has been bequeathed. That's our inheritance to all of us. All of us taste death 
because they brought death into the world. All of us are born with a sin nature because they gave us a sin nature. All of us bear guilt with them because we are united as humanity with them. Romans 5.12 is Paul's summary of this. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Genesis 3, we have the passage that articulates what we call original sin. Original sin is the understanding that the sin of our first parents has made us all guilty and has given us all a sin nature. It's a hard teaching. I don't know anybody that loves the doctrine of original sin. You know, uh, n- Nobody uh, goes to theology seminars... <laughs> Uh, excited on to hear about original sin. But original sin is unavoidable. It's a hard teaching. The facts don't lie. Raise your hand if you have not committed a sin, if you are righteous, if you can throw the stone. My hand's down. Every single one of us has sinned and has been touched by sin. There is not a single person in the billions who have lived who can deny that original sin hasn't visited upon them. And so when the Bible says, quite matter-of-factly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we recognize that the verdict, sin is slithery, sin is treasonous, sin is irreversible, is testified to by each and every one of us. Sin has turned creation into a pirate ship. And we are all mutineers. That's the verdict. So what is the problem with the world? What is the problem with me? What is the problem with you? It's sin. It's that sin came into the world. It's that we disobeyed our Creator. It's that we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The end. No, I have just one more thing to say. (laughs) Just one small thing left to say. Knowing the problem lets us know the remedy. For Paul tells us just as much that we are all sinners, but he also tells us in Romans 5.19... Speaking of this passage, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Every single one of us are under the condemnation and the sentence of sin. That is the diagnosis, that is the verdict, and that is the hall of horrors that you are in and you will always be in, except that you hear this news. God sent His one and only Son to live a life of perfect righteousness, to, of, uh, to, to deny every temptation to avoid the slitheriness of sin at every pass, to honor God as glorious at every moment, 
and then to submit himself to the brutality of the cross to make himself a sacrifice whose righteous blood was spilled so that all of the the condemnation and sin and damage and horror that our sins have heaped upon the world would be put upon him so that in him canceled are the penalties and the punishments of your sin. Cast away is the horror of being in front of God because in the cross, all that has separated you from God has been put upon Christ, removed and swallowed down, and he came back to life three days later so that all who put their faith in him have the newness of life that was lost to Adam and Eve and to all who are their children. The good news is all who put their faith in Christ will have credited to them all the righteousness of Christ and will have removed from them all the condemnation of themselves and Adam so that you will be clothed in righteousness and received back to an Eden that is better than the one that was lost. This is the remedy. It is the only remedy. Do not cling to fig leaves. Cling to Christ. Confess him. Live by him. And walk in the newness of life that he alone provides. Amen? And now we come... To celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. We are told that on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. In like manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sin entered into the world with the words, take and eat. Sin was taken out of the world by our Savior bearing the cross, bearing the shame and the guilt. And now we celebrate the victory of Christ over sin with the words, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. At communion, we celebrate and savor the victory over sin. We come to this table as sinners, recognizing that we are condemned by ourselves. But in this table, we are reminded all that we need to be forgiven and free of shame, forgiven and accepted for eternity, is provided by Christ alone. So I invite you to this table as a sinner to be saved by grace and grace alone.
in Christ alone. I have the servers please come forward. Pray with me. Father in heaven, what unbelievable love you have for your creation. That though they became rebels and mutineers, to your simple good word, you sent your son to obey for us where we had fallen, to make us righteous no matter how unrighteous we have become, and to welcome us back into the garden with the words, take and eat, that we get to enjoy here at communion as a reminder that all is forgiven in Christ alone. Father, bless this meal. Bless our walk with you. Call us to repentance and to a faithful walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.